Welcome back, everyone. I'm Michael. And I'm Andrew. And you're listening to the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Today, we're happy to welcome Sarah Gross, a former professional triathlete and current wearer of many hats. Uh, Sarah's had an interesting life. Um, born in Canada, but uh, she went to high school in the United Arab Emirates uh, before going to university in Scotland for uh, women's history, which eventually turned into a, a PhD. And then a 15-year-long professional triathlon career, uh, during which she saw some real success with wins at uh, Ironman Brazil and the North American Championship at Ironman Tremblant. Currently, Sarah is uh, an owner and operator of a CrossFit gym in uh, Victoria, BC, as well as Live Feisty Media, which we'll uh, talk about at some length. Sarah, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Excellent. So you got to see a lot of different things in um, the Middle East when you were living there. So what what kind of things did you see that really opened your eyes and, and just gave you a different perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, it it was more to do with, so I was sort of 14 years old and I got plunked into a 10th grade class, uh, where I was one of maybe two or three white people in the class. And there were people from all over the world, uh, in the class, but a lot of, you know, a lot of people from the Arab countries, a lot of Indian Pakistani people. Um, so it, Basically, I learned what it was like to be a minority, but also had to learn how to adapt and understand and get along with other people really quickly if I wanted to have friends. Um, and 14 years old is a bit of a strange age to um, be doing that, or I guess it's a bit of a hard, awkward phase. Um, so I think like the first year I clung really closely to some of the, you know, the Australian or English people at the school. And then by the time the second year I was there, um, I was able to, you know, I had a, I had a broader friendship group, I guess I really saw a big difference in the ways that I adapted. So, um, my best friend, and she's still a close friend of mine, uh, was from Lebanon and my, my longtime high school boyfriend was from Zaire. So just like things like little things like that, that I never would have experienced at home. Um, culturally, I feel like I got to know a lot of different people. That uh, puts everything into perspective with my own high school experience in London, Ontario, a uh, a fairly standard Canadian town. Um, Not much diversity. I still struggled with coming out of my shell, so I can only imagine what it was like in your position. So I don't think I would have been ready for that personally. Yeah, it was really hard. Like, I I couldn't understate that. You know, I was... um... Can I say there were a lot of middle of the night crying conversations with my best friend back home where I would sneak, you know, back in the day before we had cell phones. And so I would sneak out and call from the landline and it cost my dad basically a million dollars <laughs> to call from the Middle East. Um, but uh, <laughs> so it was a bit torturous, torturous that first year. And then I adapted. So was this back in the day of dial up Internet and ICQ and some oh, of those I think things? It was before dial up Internet. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. This is like, we're talking 1990, maybe? 91? I'm old. <laughs> well, not that much older than me. So, 
Yeah, I think a lot of the people listening uh, probably won't remember that uh, the dial-up modem sound. Um, so I think everyone our age can recite it, but younger people have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll find it for you, Andrew. Don't we'll get into change. the show just for fun. You should, yeah, edit that right in right now. Yeah, one hundred percent. That can be our intro song, maybe. <laughs> It'll be appropriate. Um, Sarah, one of the kind of the, one of the elements of that, um, you know, you're growing up in that uh, part of the world that I'm always super interested in is, you know, we we hear a lot about uh, the role of women in, uh, well, specifically in Saudi Arabia, where there's, you know, there's clearly some gender inequality and, uh, you know, a, a lot of it sort of, you know, maybe to the Western sensibility is pretty pretty stark. And uh, I read some of your, I think I read one of your blog posts where you were saying that that is perhaps not the case uh, all over the, you know, the part of the Middle East where you were. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one thing, one of, I think one of the things that people don't really see or understand, especially about women in the mid Middle East and women and women who cover as well, right? We often see them as oppressed or we actually don't see them at all, if that makes sense. Like if you, you know how sometimes mm -hmm. in society yep, there are certain totally. categories of people we don't see. Um, I think sometimes covered women are in that category. Um, but honestly, women who like, whether they're from Saudi Arabia and they have to cover or whether they choose to cover from another, um, from another place, I find them to be sometimes the most fierce women that you will ever meet <laughs> because people will take power where they can, you know, like no one, there aren't a lot of people who sit back and let themselves be oppressed, right? And I think that I've, I've known a few women from Saudi Arabia, and I think they would uh, shake their heads at some of the Western views of them um, because they will actually, they actually have a lot of interpersonal skills, I'd say, at getting what they want um, from male family members, or they, uh, they can control their family or are in charge of their family in a way that sometimes Western women don't really understand or even, or that we don't need to you know, we don't need to take power in the ways that they do. So um, it's an interesting, it, it's interesting to see how like, I, I notice this with different cultures, with different levels of freedom for women um, that or anybody, right? Um, they'll people will take people will take power where they can. Uh, and they definitely do. But yeah, to, to your point, I think what you were getting at is that there are some really stark differences in the Middle East in terms of how, um, in terms of the freedoms that women have. So um, in where I grew up in the United Arab Emirates or in Bahrain, there's a lot of a lot of freedom. Like there were women, typically not um, Muslim women, but there were women who would walk around in Dubai with bikini tops on. You know, um, so it's a very free society, and and that would be different from Emirate to Emirate. So, but in Dubai itself, you would see that. Uh, so it's not necessarily what people envision happening in the Middle East. Um, there's a real mixed bag of, uh, I guess there's a real variety of, of how people choose to live. That makes sense. And specifically uh, about women's ability to participate in sports and, you know, triathlon being a sport that uh, generally is not super well covered. You know, I mean, the participants aren't super well covered unless they're in wetsuits and swim caps. Mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the opportunity there for women? Yeah, that's a really great question. It has changed so much in the last 
I'd say 10 to 15 years. When I, when I first started, I used to train with Ferris Al-Sultan, um, in, cool. in Alain. Uh, I, we just, I just found him there cause that's where I grew up. And then one day at the pool, there's this guy swimming really fast. Um, and then we'd sometimes go for rides together through the desert and stuff. So he was a really great mentor for me. Um, but I used to make fun of him cause before he won, like before he won the Ironman world champs, obviously. And he came third one year before that, but before that he finished, like he was a total tri geek. He did Lanzarote, I think when he was 17 years old. Um, and he was just this kid, this like spotty face kid who would say to me, I'm going to win the world championships. I'm like, didn't you come like 64th last year? <laughs> really? Are you sure? Um, but he just, he just kept at it. And he, it, that was a really good, that was actually really good for me to see at the point where I was at. Cause I was kind of a, an age grouper thinking of turning pro at that time. Um, but to answer your question about um, opportunities for women to race, when we used to go to races back then, there was, it was all Western women who would participate in triathlons, you know, the little local triathlons. It was, there was, you wouldn't see any local women. You wouldn't see any um, Muslim women or Arab women from any other place. Uh, and now when I went, when I was there, say in 2016 with the Bahrain, um, the Bahrain 13 team, you see women from all over the Middle East. And specifically, you see women from Saudi Arabia, from places that you wouldn't expect competing. And they have clothing options. Some people compete covered or uncovered. Uh, so you see, basically, it's kind of night and day. And you see people representing Iran and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. So it's, um, it's really changing quickly. That's awesome. That's really great to hear. And that's, I mean, you know, that's a, I would plug that as a type of innovation, I suppose, maybe a cultural innovation. Absolutely. I think too, once you, from talking to people, once you figure out the clothing, right? With a lot of Muslim women, it's about, can I do this and still um, cover it the way that I want to? And once once that clothing piece is figured out and once companies started to get on board with making good sports hijabs, um, it, so it all turning, to take it's off. kind of turning our attention back to women in sports. Uh, there's obviously a lot going on. I mean, I'm really glad I listened to your your podcast. Which um, do you want to plug, Sarah? <laughs> well, we so uh, about let's see, almost two years ago, I started a media company called Live Feisty Media, and we have two podcasts. Um, the most popular is called Iron Women, and Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura, who are both pro athletes, they interview pro women or women who you know. Sometimes we interview sports nutritionists or physiologists like Stacey Sims. Um, so we basically every week have an amazing woman on the podcast. Um, so that's one po podcast. And then I think the one you were referring to is If We Were Riding that I do with Kelly O'Mara, who is a journalist from California and also a pro athlete. And her and I basically just do a bit of kind of like armchair banter about the social context of triathlon, I'd say, would, mm -hmm. would summarize what we're talking about. Um, we basically, uh, let's see, we talk about issues happening in a sport. We call it triathlon and triathlon adjacent news. So. Yeah. Makes sense. But, um, you know, that's there, there's definitely, you know, your podcasts being a prime example, but there are lots of cases where, you know, women in sports compared to, let's say even 10, 20 years ago are a much bigger part of the story than they used to be. 
so from your perspective, obviously being in it much more than than probably Andrew or I, um, what uh, what have you seen kind of in the last? I don't know. Take whatever time horizon you like that you that has uh, that has really turned your head and made you. Um, you know, made you happy or made you not so happy about what's uh, the the rise of prominence of women in sport? Yeah, good question. It's um, it's sort of hard to quantify that stuff. So I I'm seeing some recently some some positive change. You know, like with the, the women's um basketball, you see you see that kind of change in Australia. There's like a women's pro netball league. Um, there's a couple other sports that now have pro leagues in Australia. Uh, the Let's see. Recently, like the Women's World Cup of the soccer, which is just starting, is is becoming more popular. Like you actually see it in the sports news, so that's good. But if you look at things compared to to where men's sport is at and the money in men's sport, you can see still how big the divide is. If you look at how much money is pumped into hockey in in the North American context, into men's hockey, football, basketball, baseball, I mean, there's a still a huge there's still huge opportunities that are missing for the women. And there's still tons of, uh, would you say like mentors being shown before boys and men to like, there's a, there's a place to go for people who want to become professional athletes. Right. But for women, those, that pathway does still doesn't exist to the top, top level. And so if you divide it up, I think it's still, I think women still only get 4% of all media coverage sport when you put everything into one pile. Um, and that's still a massive problem. So I don't know. There have been some, there have been some pretty nice achievements recently, but I still think we have a long way to go. And what about in our sport specifically in triathlon? In triathlon, oh, what can you say? I mean, <laughs> we've you, okay. When 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 you talk about triathlon, you have to say first always that we've had equal prize money from the beginning, right? And that is a really important thing. And so. And so, yes, kudos to everyone who was around in the 70s and 80s who made those decisions. Um, I do think, though, that there's been very little change since that time. So we were a very progressive sport when we first started. And now we've kind of we kind of got caught in the mud a little bit. So the next step, I mean, obviously, we tried if if people aren't familiar in, in 2015, I suppose we made a real push to try to get equal slots for the pro women in Kona at the Ironman World Championship and have been turned down again and again in multiple ways over the years. And that's still not a reality. So the pro women still don't have equal access to the world championship. And the fact that we have this counter argument about proportional representation, that there's still a huge number of people in our sport that will, um, that, that think that that's a good argument, despite, um, despite like the historical context, of course, of women being excluded and, and there being really good reasons why there might not be as many pro women. And and the fact that we should probably encourage more pro women still, you know, still we can't convince the powers that be that, um, that the pro women should have equal access. So that's a problem. And that tells, um, that tells me a lot about the, what would you say? The, the, the social context of our sport, right? That there's still this, um, there's still a bit of, drawing lines. There's still some lines being drawn in the sand around that stuff that um, I definitely think needs to change. Well, that ties into your point about, um, about, you know, role models, right? So if you don't, you know, if you're, if you're not going to create the opportunities for women to be 
you know, uh, this, the same number of, of pro women to compete as, as pro men, then you have fewer role models for women entering the sport who want to perform at a high level, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a chicken and egg scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and access and access proceeds or like access and opportunity has to come first. You can't. For sure. Um, it's hard to expect the pro women's numbers to, to rise if you don't give them something to grow into. And that's really, and, and that's on multiple levels. That's not just about the slots in Kona. That's also about um, stepping stones and mentorship. And, and there's a bigger problem in the pro field right now, just in general, in terms of because it's shrinking, the money's shrinking. There's other things going on that affect that as well. Yeah, and you took the almost exact wording I had, the chicken and egg problem there, where if you have more slots available, you'll attract more pro athletes, but then they say, well, there's not enough pro athletes to justify more slots. Um, so it is it is difficult to make that argument mm -hmm. and get that initial momentum. But once you get there, then I'd say that's when you start to provide the role models for young women um, and then get more people interested in the sport. They get to see their heroes when they're young, um, which, yeah, it's something that just at some point, someone just needs to step up and make the change. Um, I know you're pushing for it, Sarah, and it's not uh, not necessarily your choice. But um, yeah, the, the powers that be, I guess, should uh, hopefully listen to the argument you're making. Yeah. And I actually, I am not totally convinced that there's not the depth there in the women's field. I mean, I I would say... Give us, not us, I'm not a pro anymore, but <laughs> give them 50 slots and see what happens. Because I think there's enough really good women in the world right now that th that those shoes would be filled pretty quickly. Well, even looking at some of the numbers recently, uh, so this past weekend with Ironman Boulder, um, Lauren Brandon uh, clocked the fastest swim time ever on that race. Um, I know at Kona last year, uh, Danielle Reef was, I think, the fastest or like third fastest cyclist in the last 70K of the race or of the, the bike leg. So it's not like the talent isn't there. There's certainly fast women out there. So um, the, the depth and the, the skill exist. And it's just, um, I guess, just a matter of getting getting that extra awareness. Yeah. And, or convincing one guy that the change needs to be made. <laughs> just saying. That's, that seems to be the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you're, uh, you coach as well, right? I do. I do a little bit. I, I still coach kind of a handful of people that, um, that are sort of, they're real special to me. So they're kind of self-selected. I don't do a lot of coaching anymore, and, but I have coached for probably 12 or 15 years. So this is kind of a question that I'm supremely interested in and I'm about to sneeze. So I apologize because <laughs> total, total side story. I, uh, I went swimming for the first time in, in 10 months. I'm a triathlete who doesn't swim much because I don't have much time. And uh, it like, it always kills me for the first, you know, the first few swims, the chlorine. So that's a story you didn't need to hear, but. Well, you should wear a nose plug. That's my coaching advice for you. You know, thank you. I um, I, I should. I find them super uncomfortable, oh, but yeah. yeah, it's it's probably worth the discomfort. Yeah, they look really dorky, but maybe just to get you through those first few swims. <laughs> I'd say you're probably the same as about ninety percent of the other triathletes out there, just ignoring swimming. And hoping it gets <laughs> right. I actually I actually suggested that we do a podcast episode on like the value of swimming, Andrew. <laughs> That's a separate. That's a separate, <laughs> separate topic. Very contentious one, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> um, so nothing to do with swimming, Sarah. The so you know I, I coach. I coach also, and my cohort actually probably is usually more women than men, uh, which is great. But uh, is there is there anything that you do specifically to help the women grow in the sport? 
Well, I think, you know, one of the, when we started the Outspoken Summit, are you familiar with the summit? Uh, I just read the uh, the highlights on your website. That's as familiar as I am. Yeah. What, why don't we take a second and just talk about the summit and then we can dive into that question. Because I think that would be my main contribution right now in terms of the women in triathlon uh, question is that is that last year in 2018, Lisa Ingerfield and I decided that we that we felt everyone should come together who was interested in creating equity for women in triathlon. And so we launched the first women's in tri- women in triathlon summit and we called it outspoken um, and it's in Tempe in the fall. Um, and we're doing it again, 2019. Okay. So that's my plug. <laughs> Go look it up. Outspokensummit.com. Um, but yeah, we'll, I think yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. I, um, I definitely, I guess I just, there's a lot of initiatives around trying to drive participation for women. So women for try has been around for a little while. Um, I know there are, I know a ton of individuals in communities, even like you say, you're coaching more women than men. I know a lot of people who really are doing a lot to bring more women into the sport. And that's great. And what Lisa and I felt was that the broader conversation needed a little bit of a push in terms of um, how we create equity for women, how we create stepping stones then once women are in the sport, how we keep them in the sport and keep them interested, how we create more leadership positions for women and allow and more have more women in the industry. Biking industry is terrible. You know, triathlons are not far behind in terms of women being in um, jobs there and in leadership positions. Federations uh, tend to be a little bit better on having equal numbers on boards and stuff like that, but still not perfect. So we wanted to create a space where you can, where we could have this conversation about um, women's equity and women's leadership in the sport. And so for me, that's where I sort of see my main contribution. The work of getting more women into the sport, I think, is being done well in other places. I, I think I, I echo that first part for sure, um, or that last part, I suppose, that, uh, you know, with my experience with, say, like local local tri clubs and things, there's a, there are there are good initiatives there to get uh, to get women to participate. So your uh, this summit is focused more on um, on moving women up the I don't know food chain is if uh, to use a to use that term. Yeah, that would be that would be a good term. Yeah, I think it's um it's definitely for it's for everybody. We had we had a mix of people there from beginner age group athletes right up to pro athletes, industry leaders, federation, um, business owners, stuff like that. But we, yeah, I think I feel like those stepping stones don't exist. There was before the summit, there was not any kind of official mentorship program within triathlon, and that is just launching. Um, we definitely um, wanted to, and and also the the question about like how you change, and this is an obviously a difficult question to answer, and it's ongoing for us, but how you change the culture of something to make it more welcoming and inclusive, just in general, not just for women. Um, that's a really difficult question to answer, but it's definitely one that we talk about at the summit as well. Uh, I think that the, the culture question is a really important one too, because, uh, you know, uh, kind of anecdotally you hear that, oh, triathlons are really friendly sport. That's what, that's what triathletes maybe would like to think. Cause there's certainly examples of, of that not being the case. And there's, there's the, there are a lot of barriers to entry to the sport, let's be honest. And, and even probably bigger barriers to progression through it. If you've ever been to Kona, um, 
there's a lot of friendly people there, but there's also a lot of super type A, like very stereotypical hardcore triathletes there. And it's uh, it's a bit intimidating being there for the first time, um, especially, well, I wasn't racing. It would have been even worse if I, if I were <laughs> racing. But um, yeah, I, if that was my first glimpse of the sport of triathlon, I don't know if I would continue. And I'm sure women face a lot of the same difficulties with uh, with getting into the sport and seeing something intimidating like that. But um yeah. And I think there's like, I think we are a friendly sport. I don't want to come across as saying that we're not a friendly sport. And I think there's a big gap between being, you know, people try to be friendly and welcoming. Right. And then there's kind of a gap between that and like, imagine yourself coming to, especially in particular in Ironman or somewhere where more of the hardcore athletes, which like, like Kona, but even it's some of the regular Ironmans, um, imagine coming there as, um, as a black woman or as an indigenous woman, uh, how mm. you might feel and how little things could make a really big difference to your experience. So it's not necessarily someone being friendly or welcoming or not, even though it would, it would definitely helps when people are welcoming, but there might be some other little, um, little things that could help like seeing other people like yourself there. Um, or I don't know, like having, having specific groups that are, you know, Facebook groups for for people in various demographics. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can talk about that stuff and create initiatives um, that those are some of the conversations that kind of spun out of the summit. No, that's a, that's a, that's a really great point. I think that's, you know, that's something that like I'll speak for myself as a, as a white dude in his, you know, mid to late thirties, I am kind of the, you know, the fat end of the bell curve of triathlon participation. Right. Um, you know, most people look exactly like me and, and speak my language and do all the things that I normally do. So it's, you know, it, it, it takes a little bit of mental, you know, like stretching my mind to think of what it would be like for, to be, you know, like you said, like a, a black woman or an indigenous woman in that sea of, uh, of white dudes and well, some white women as well. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and even for, you know, even for myself, I'm, I'm saying this, but I don't, I don't know what that experience is either. Cause I think I'm, I'm still in the majority in terms of how, in terms of how I look and how welcome I feel certainly at, at a triathlon. So that's, that's a part of why, um, I, we wanted to create a space where it's like, Hey, we're listening. What can we do? How can we help? How can we make change together? That's really cool. What I will say is, um, on the local level, I've seen a lot of a lot more progressive thinking, um, and maybe that's just the the local races that we have in Ontario here. But um, the the Multi Sport Canada series, um, it's super welcoming and friendly, and I've seen minorities come in with really no idea how to, you know, no familiarity with the sport, but still come in and participate. And in that context, people were very helpful, and even though maybe they were the only person of that ethnicity, there were a lot of people there willing to step up and help them with any questions. So it was good to see that. But at some of the bigger events where people are a little more focused on themselves and their own performance, you don't see that same kind of welcoming atmosphere. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a shame when you get to the, the higher levels that that happens. Yeah, it's true. And even at the next level, you know, last year when we were looking for speakers for the summit, or when I was talking to people who run other conferences within the triathlon space, um, and asking them about why they don't have as much diversity. And, you know, I was told point blank, you know, that most people in our sport are white. So, you know, th therefore, the people who know what they're talking about on X topic also happen to be white, like, and Lisa and I, 
definitely said, we decided or like, no, just because just because we don't know someone doesn't mean they're not out there. Right. Um, so we made kind of a concerted effort to find people who were um, leaders or experts in the various things that we wanted to uh, talk about at the summit, but that also came from different demographics or who might bring a different perspective to what we were talking about. And we found those people, you know, and, and we still, and of course we could have done, we can always do a better job. Like we're still kind of trying to look outward in that way and, and find people, but it wasn't, it really wasn't that hard to find, um, to find leaders from different demographics who had expertise, like real expertise to talk on, on, on a variety of topics. So we were, I was pretty glad <laughs> that we were, um, that we did that extra work, you know, because um, I think that was like, that's the homework we have to do if we're going to create more diversity. And I think there's a lot of people out there waiting to express their opinions and help people. It's just a, a matter of asking them in a lot of cases. And absolutely. Um, and it's great that you're there asking the questions and getting them out there in front of an audience that's receptive to it. Yeah. But I think the point is, um, you got to, you got to go look as the kind of as the major, as the majority, it's on us to, to, find folks who, who need that help and to to offer it actively. Yeah. And that's the first time I was really in that kind of position too. So it's, it's I'm probably saying something that other people have done a million times, but it was kind of the first time I was put in this on the spot because we had, we'd launched this thing and we were, you know, we definitely wanted not just, we didn't just want all white women at our summit, right? And we wanted to help create diversity and inc an inclusive culture in our sport. So then it was on us to to create that at our summit too. So we then sat scratching our heads going, okay, how do we do that? Um, and so that's where we had to think kind of outside the box a little bit and try to try to figure out how we, how we find people and figure out who's doing what great work. And seeing what uh, what the response has been so far, so I guess this year you've basically doubled the the available registration positions, and obviously gotten a great reception for things. Yeah, so last year we sold out a couple months before, just as there was kind of an uptick in registration around September, we sold out, uh, and so this year we moved to ASU, and so we have the participants will have access to all the you know, to the 50 meter open air swimming pool in Arizona, uh, which will be nice. And, and all the gym equipment, stuff, uh, which is a nice bonus, but also we can, we have the space now to accommodate probably up to 300 people um, if we can get people registered. So that's, yeah, we're really, we're really pushing. We also have, um, we also have a really, oh, I shouldn't say it, but we have an exciting speaker announcement coming up. So I'm so excited. That's a nice little teaser. I know. But we do have, we have Sarah True, who's been announced. We have Sally Edwards, who was the founder of Fleet Feet. She's in her 70s now, and she's a very feisty woman. Everyone, she was there last year, and everybody asked for her to speak again. Um, and then we also have Dr. Rachel McKinnon, who's a trans cyclist and also um, studies trans rights and support. That should be an interesting conversation that's not really happening elsewhere in triathlon to speak of. Um, and we found another woman who was the first, she was the first woman to, oh, I don't know enough about the U.S. Air Force, but she was the head of some U.S. Air Force squadron. She's the first um, African-American and the first woman to be in charge of this particular special division. So um, she has a really cool story and she's been a triathlete for 20 years. So um, we're putting her on stage too. I'm excited. Excellent. So I, I just want to pivot the conversation a little bit here. You mentioned Rachel McKinnon, and we um, 
we before we started recording, we we had a little bit of a conversation about um, just I guess gender equality, and so um, your editor had some some comments. The editor from your podcast had some comments about the Castor Semenya ruling. Um, so, do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it was actually a really interesting conversation that happened within my. I now have a group of about eight of us who are working on Live Feisty, just in them and I'm full-time, but them in small ways. Um, And my podcast editor, we were all basically, uh, we stand with like, you know, hashtag we stand with Semenya. Um, We were pretty, uh, we felt pretty good about the appeal that went through that she was actually, because how you categorize a a woman for... (laughs) for the sake of sport is very difficult. And I think drawing a line in the sand around testosterone is, it's a tough thing. And and it took the I, the IAAF, you know, could only, they could only find enough evidence for certain distances. And it just, it really wasn't making a lot of sense in my opinion. Um, but interestingly, um, as a trans athlete, my podcast editor was said, well, wait a second, um, if it's what's good for one group should be the same for the other. So, um, how do we regulate? Because of course she's been told over and over again that it's all about testosterone and she takes estrogen injections and she, and testosterone blockers, um, because in order for her to participate in sport, even as an amateur athlete. So her question really was, well, why should there be one set of rules for, um, caster and a different set of rules for a trans athlete, which I actually thought was a really good question and one that I can't really answer that well, to be honest. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good conversation topic um, because there are other places that this line in the sand has been drawn. Um, and the example we, we discussed briefly before was uh, with cycling where they have a hematocrit limit just because EPO is very difficult to actually detect. Um, so basically they say your blood can't have more than a certain amount of blood, red blood cells. So why wouldn't the same line in the sand be drawn for testosterone? Why do they have to go through other criteria? Um, so it is an interesting point and it's an interesting argument. Um, and I don't think it's anywhere near being resolved, but uh, it's good that the conversation is starting to happen. No, I agree. And I think I know that there is a lot of science around testosterone and the performance advantage. And But but for me, I'm not a scientist. So for me, um, I look at that and I think really, are we going to, is that it? We're going to define women as a certain way in the context of sport and, and it's just going to be about testosterone that it just, um, it just feels a little bit oversimplified to me, but you know, maybe, maybe science is right and it is all about testosterone levels and carry on. I don't know. I think you're right that it's oversimplified. There's a lot of, uh, even 10 years ago, people were looking at genetics and saying this certain gene controls this, this feature. And now people are realizing, well, there's tens of thousands of genes that work together and how they're expressed may control a feature and you may be likely to express something, but it could be the same with testosterone where it's just not a clear answer. Yes, exactly. Well, and if you think back about the of the history of um, of how we define the women's category in sport, right? Like first, we used to pull people aside who looked too masculine, literally take them into a closed room and measure their clit. I mean, <laughs> it's it doesn't feel that different to this. Um, it's just a little. It's just a little less invasive. Instead, we take their blood. But how do we decide? It's not like all pro athletes or all athletes who go to the Olympic Games automatically get tested for testosterone levels. That's not happening. That's not how it works. So how do we pick who's being 
pulled aside and tested. And then in the middle, you have the chromosome phase where we somehow decided that chromosomes were the decider of sex when it comes to sport. And it turns out that wasn't right either. So it does feel to me a little bit like science moves along and that eventually this testosterone thing will too, but I don't know. How, how offended would guys be if they said, you know, everyone has to come and measure their penis before a race? Right. Can you imagine that? Oh yeah. That would be, that'd be like, people would just, you know, be complete uproar. There'd be riots. Um, imagine like, yeah, if your penis is too small, you're in the women's category. <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. But that, that puts it into perspective though. I think right. the, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's just one, one group that has more power expresses an opinion. And then that becomes the the gospel truth, I guess, after that. Well, yeah. And it is, it really isn't that much of a jump to like measuring a clit to like, it's just like evasive in a different way to taking your blood and measuring your hormone levels. Right. Like that's, it's just more clinical. Yeah. It's just an outward expression. of it. But uh, getting back to our conversation about testosterone, I like what you said about science moves along. And I think that's just, that's maybe the best, that's, that's the answer of the moment is that, you know, there is no, um, you know, there is no, there is no right answer for this question right now. Um, testosterone is a little bit wishy-washy as far as, you know, what you said earlier about why they only ruled it out, why they only uh, set a cap for testosterone for, I think it was like 400, 800 and 1500 for women um, and not other distances because they couldn't find a clear, you know, causal relationship there. And that speaks volumes to mm-hmm. the fact that, well, maybe that even the relationship for those three distances is not super, super strong. So, you know, is testosterone kind of the, you know, that red line? Maybe, maybe not. Sounds like it no longer is after this uh, this ruling in the Swiss courts. Um, so, you know, the fact that science moves along and from from sort of like biomorphic measurements uh, initially to to chromosome um, to chromosomes to uh, serum levels of uh, of hormones, you know, we we don't have an answer yet. I think I think that's probably the best place to to put that. So the real question is, why can't everyone just be honest and say this is where I think I should be, and then compete there? Why can't it just be fair? Yeah. Well, <laughs> why can't it just be fair? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, I, th- I mean, the question f- for me too is, is about, is around pro- the protected class of women. Like people will say that women's sport is a protected class, right? And it needs to be a protected class. But for me, it's about like protected from what? Like how, how many, it's not like we have, we have hordes of men posing as women coming in to win the couple hundred of dollars that are available for women's sport you know it's um it's this is not a huge problem like we're trying to solve something that's not that doesn't feel like a big problem to me Uh, maybe if I ran the 800 I I might feel differently about it I'm not sure but um and and also creating a situation like like they did for a very short time there with Castor where literally she would qualify as a man in one distance but then if she ran longer she she would qualify as a woman that doesn't make any sense either all right well i think we've probably talked a lot about this and uh i think a lot of listeners have probably heard a lot of discussion in the past about caster as well so maybe they're getting sick of hearing about it but uh um, it is an interesting conversation to have and i think there's a lot of valid points that we discussed that uh that 
just people need to take into consideration. And it's it's important to think that um, science hasn't really come up with an answer. There's there's a lot of discussion to be had still. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's not easy. It's not um Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm saying things like I'm really opinionated, <laughs> but, but, um, I, yeah, I definitely see that it, it's very complicated and complex and I, I don't envy anyone who has to make a final call on that. No, agreed. Um, so maybe this is a good spot to, uh, wrap up our chat. Sarah, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us today. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, if there's anything that uh, I know we we talked about the um, uh, the summit and uh, live feisty a little bit, but if there's anything else that you want to, you know, any of you any of the resources that you make available that you want to share with folks, uh, let let us know now, and then we'll also of course put all of the all of the relevant links in our show notes. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, definitely the livefeisty.com, the media stuff, the podcasts, and the summit keep me pretty busy. So there's not much else on my plate right now. 